Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast. I am your host, Isaiah Gutierrez, and today we're going to continue reading The Scarlet Leather, Chapter 21, The New England Holiday. Now, without further ado, happy listening! Betimes in the morning of the day on which the new governor was to receive his office at the hands of the people, Hester Prine and Little Pearl came into the marketplace. It was already thronged with the craftsmen, the other plebeian inhabitants of the town, in considerable numbers, among whom, likewise, were many rough figures, whose attire of deer skins marked them as belonging to some of the forest settlements which surrounded the little metropolis of the colony. On this public holiday, as on all other occasions for seven years past, Hester was clad in a garment of coarse gray cloth, not more by its hue than by some indescribable peculiarity in its fashion. It had the effect of making her fade personally out of sight and outline, while, again, the scarlet leather brought her back from this twilight indistinctness and revealed her under the moral aspect of its own illumination. Her face, so long, so long familiar to the townspeople, showed the marble quietude which they were accustomed to behold there. It was like a mask, or rather, like the frozen calmness of a dead woman's features, owing this dreary resemblance to the fact that Hester was actually dead in respect to any claim of sympathy and had departed out of the world, with which she still seemed to mingle. It might be on this one day that there was an expression unseen before, nor indeed vivid enough to be detected now, unless some preternaturally gifted observer should have first read the heart and have afterwards sought a corresponding development in the countenance and mien. Such a spiritual seer might have conceived that after sustaining the gaze of the multitude through seven miserable years as a necessity, a penance, and something which it was a stern religion to endure, she now, for one last time more, encountered it freely and voluntarily in order to convert what had so long been agony to a kind of triumph. Look at last on the scarlet leather and its wearer, the people's victim and lifelong bound slave as they fancied her might say to them yet a little while and she will be beyond your reach a few hours longer and the deep mysterious ocean will quench and hide forever the symbol which she have accustomed to burn upon her bosom nor were an inconsistency too improbable to be assigned to human nature should be supposed a feeling of regret in hester's mind at the moment when she was about to win her freedom from the pain which had been thus deeply incorporated with her being might there not be an irresistible desire to quaff a last long breathless draught of the cup of wormwood and aloes with which nearly all her years of womanhood had been perpetually favored flavored the wine of life henceforth to be presented to her lips must be indeed rich delicious and exhilarating in its chaste and golden beaker or else leave an inevitable and weary languor after the lees of bitterness wherewith she had been drugged as with a cordial of interest potency pearl was decked out with airy gaiety it would have been impossible to guess that this bright and sunny apparition owed its existence to the shape of a gloomy gray 
or that a fancy at once so gorgeous and so delicate must have been requisite to contrive the child's apparel, was the same that had achieved a task perhaps more difficult in imparting so distinct peculiarity to Hester's simple robe. The dress, so proper was it to little Pearl, seemed an effluence or inevitable development and outward manifestation of her character, no more to be separated from her than the many-hued brilliancy from a butterfly's wing or the painted glory from the leaf of a bright flower. As was as with these, so with the child, her garb was all was all of one idea with her nature. On this eventful day, moreover, there was a certain singular inquietude and excitement in her mood, resembling nothing so much as the shimmer of a diamond that sparkles and flashes with the very throbbings of the breast on which it is displayed. Children have always a sympathy in the agitations of those connected with them always especially a sense of any trouble or impending revolution of whatever kind in domestic circumstances and therefore pearl who was the gem of her mother's unquiet bosom betrayed by the very dance of her spirits the emotion which none could detect in the marble passiveness of hester's brow this ever essence made her flit with a bird-like movement rather than walk by her mother's side she broke continually into shouts of a wild inarticulate and sometimes piercing music when they reached the marketplace she became still more restless on perceiving the stir and bustle that enlivened the spot for it was usually more like the broad and lonesome green before a village meeting house than the center of a town's business why what is this mother cried she wherefore all the people left their work to-day it is a play day for the whole world see there is the blacksmith he was washing his sooty face and put on his sabbath day clothes and looks as if he would gladly be merry if any kind body would only treat him now and there is master bracket the old jailer nodding and smiling at me what does he do so mother he remembers thee a little babe my child answered hester he should not nod and smile at me for all that the black grim ugly-eyed old man said pearl he may nod at thee if he will for thou art clad in grey and wearest the scarlet leather but see mother how many faces of strange people and indians among them and sailors what have they all come to do here in the market-place they wait to see the procession pass said hester for the governor and the magistrates are go are to go by and the ministers and all the great people and good people with the music and soldiers marching before them and will the minister be there asked pearl and will he hold out both his hands to me when as when thou less leddest me to him from the brookside he will be there child answered the mother but he will not agree thee to-day nor must thou greet him what a strange sad man is he said the child as if speaking partly to herself in the dark night time he calls us to him and holds thy hand in mine as we stood with him on the scaffold yonder and in the deep forest where only the old trees can hear and the strip of the sky see it he talks with thee sitting on the heap of moss and he kisses my forehead too so that li the little brook would hardly wash it off but here in a sunny day and among all the people he knows us not nor 
must we know him? A strange, sad man is he, with his hand always on his heart. Be quiet, Pearl, thou understandest not these things, said her mother. Think not now of the minister, but look about thee, and see how cheery everybody's face is today. The children have come from their schools, and the grown people from their workshops and the fields, on purpose to be happy. For today a new man is beginning to rule over them. And so, as has been the custom of mankind ever since the nation was first gathered, they make merry and rejoice, as if a good and golden year were at length to pass over the poor old world. It was as Hester said, in regard to the unwanted jollity that brightened the faces of the people. Into this festal season of the year, as it already was and continued to be during the greater part of two centuries, the Puritans compressed whatever mirth and public joy they deemed allowable to human infirmity, hereby so far dispelling the customary cloud that, for the space of a single holiday, they appeared scarcely sacred scarcely more grave than most of other communities at a period of general affliction. But we perhaps exaggerate the gray or sable tinge, which undoubtedly characterized the mood and manners of the age. The persons now in the marketplace of Boston had not been born to an inheritance of puritanic gloom. They were native Englishmen whose fathers had lived in the sunny richness of the Elizabethan epoch. A time when the life of England, viewed as one great mass, would appear to have been a stately, magnificent, and joyous, as the world has ever witnessed. Had they followed their hereditary taste, the New England settlers would have illustrated all events of public importance by bonfires, banquets, pageantries, and processions. Nor would it have been impracticable practicable in the observance of majestic ceremonies to combine mirthful recreation with solemnity and give as it were a grotesque and brilliant embroidery to the great robe of state which a nation such as festivals puts on there was some shadow of an attempt of this kind in mode of celebrating the day on which the political year of this colony commenced the dim reflection of a remembered splendor a colorless and manifold deluded repetition of what they had beheld in proud old london we will not say at royal coronation but at a lord's mayor show might be traced in the customs which our forefather forefathers instituted with reference to the annual installation of magistrates the fathers and founders of the commonwealth the statesmen the priest and the soldier deemed it a duty when they assumed the outward state and majesty which, in accordance with antique style, was looked upon the proper garb of public or social eminence. All came forth to move in procession before the people's eye, and thus impart a needed dignity to the simple framework of a government so newly constructed. Then, too, the people were counter-enhanced, if not encouraged, in relaxing the severe and close application of their various modes and rugged industry, which at all other times seemed of the same peace and material with their religion. Here, it is true, were none of the appliances which popular merriment would so readily have found in England of Elizabeth's time or that of James, no rude shows of a theatrical kind, no minstrel with his harp and legendary ballad, 
nor gleeman with an ape dancing to his music, no juggler with his tricks of mimic witchcraft, no merry Andrew to stir up the multitude with jests, perhaps hundreds of years old, but still effective by their appeals to the very broadest sources of mirthful sympathy. All such professors of several branches of jocularity would have been sternly repressed, not only by the rigid discipline of law, but by the general sentiment which gives law its vitality. Not the less, however, the great honest face of the people smiled, grimly perhaps, but widely too. Nor were sports wanting, such as colonists had witnessed and shared in long ago at the county, country affairs and the village greens of England, and which it was thought well to keep alive on this new soil, for the sake of courage of manliness that were essential in them. Wrestling matches in the different fashions of Cornwall and Devonshire were were seen here and there about the marketplace. In the corner, there was a friendly bout at quarterstaff, and what attracted most interest of all, on the platform of the pillory already so noted in our pages, two masters of defense were commencing an exhibition with the buckler and broadsword. But, much to the disappointment of the crowd, this latter business was broken off by the interposition of the town beetle, who had no idea of permitting the majesty of the law to be violated by such an abuse of one of its consecrated places. It may not be too much to affirm, on the whole, the people being then in the first stages of joyless deportment, and the offspring of sires who had known how to be merry in their day, that they would compare favorably in point of holiday, keeping with their descendants, even at so long an interval as ourselves, their immediately posterity, the generation next to the early emigrants, wore the blackest shade of Puritanism and so darkened the national visage with it, that all the subsequent years have not suffered to clear it up, suffice to clear it up. We have yet to learn again the forgotten art of gaiety. The picture of human life in the marketplace, though its general tint was a sad gray, brown, or black of the English emigrants, was yet enlivened by some diversity of hue. A party of Indians, in their savage finery of curiously embroidered deerskin robes, warm palm belts, red and yellow ochre and feathers, and armed with the bow and arrow and stone-headed spears stood apart with countenances of inflexible gravity beyond what even the Puritan aspect could attain, nor wild as if these painted barbarians were they the wildest feature of this scene. This distinction could more justly be claimed by some mariners, a part of the crew of the vessel of, of the Spanish main, who had come ashore to see the humors of election day, they were rough-looking desperados, with some blackened faces and an immensity of beard. Their wide, short trousers were confined about the waist by belts, often clasped with a rough plate of gold and sustaining always a long knife and, in some instances, a sword. From beneath their broad-brimmed hats of palm-leaf-gleamed eyes, which, even in good nature and merriment, had a kind of animal ferocity. They transgressed without fear or scruple the rules of behavior that were 
binding on all others, smoking tobacco under the beetle's very nose, although each whiff could have cost a townsman a shilling, a quaffing at their pleasure, draughts of wine or aquavitae from pocket flasks, which they freely tendered to the gaping crowd around them. It remarkably characterized the incomplete morality of the age, rigid as we call it, that a license was allowed to see far in class, not merely for their freaks on shore, but for far more desperate deeds on their proper element. The sailor of the day would go near to be arranged as a pirate in our own. There could be little doubt, for instance, that this very ship's crew, though no unfavorable specimens of nautical brotherhood, had been guilty, as we should phrase it, phrase it, of its depredations on the Spanish commerce, such as would have periled all their necks in a modern court of justice. But the sea, in those times, heaved, swelled, and foamed very much at its own will, or sub or subject only to the temperous wind, with hardly any attempts at regulation by human law. The buccaneer on the wave might requellish his calling and become at once, if he chose, a man of probity and piety on land. Nor, even in the full career of his reckless life, he, he was he regarded as a personage with whom it was disreputable to traffic or casually associate. Thus, the Puritan elders, in their black cloaks, starch bands, and steeple-crowned hats, smiled not unbendingly at the clamor and rude deportment of these jolly seafaring men, and it excited neither surprise nor animadversion when so reputable a citizen as old Roger Chillingsworth, the physician, was seen to enter the marketplace in close and familiar talk with the commander of the questionable vessel. The latter was by far the most showy and gallant figure, so far as apparel went, anywhere to be seen among the multitude. He wore a profusion of ribbons on his garment and gold lace on his hat, which was also encircled by a gold chain and surmounted with a feather. There was a sword at his side, and a sword cut on his forehead, which, by the arrangement of his hair, he seemed anxious rather to display than hide. The landsman could have hardly worn his garb and shown his face, a worn and shown them both with such gallant air, without undergoing a stern question before a magistrate, and probably incurring fine or imprisonment, or perhaps an exhibition in the stocks, as regarded the shipmaster. However, all was looked upon as pertaining to character, as to fish his glistening scales. After parting from the physician, the commander of the Bristol ship strolled idly through the marketplace until happening to approach the spot where Hester Prine was standing. He appeared to recognize and did not hesitate to address her. As was usually the case whenever Hester stood, a small vacant area, a sort of magic circle, had formed itself about her, into which, though people were elbowing one another at a little distance, none ventured or felt disposed to intrude. It was a forcible type of moral solitude in which the scarlet leather enveloped its faded wearer, partly by her own reserve and partly by the indistinctive, though no longer so unkindly, withdrawal of her fellow creatures. Now, it never 
If never before, it was under a good purpose by enabling Hester and the seaman to speak together without risk of being overheard. And so changed was Hester Prime's repute before the public that the matron in town most eminent for rigid mortality could not have held such intercourse with less result of scandal than herself. So, mistress, said the mariner, I must bid the steward make ready one more berth than you bargained for. No fear of scurvy or ship fever this voyage. But this ship's surgeon and this other doctor, our only danger will be from drug or pill, more by token, as there is a lot of apothecary stuffs aboard, which I traded with a Spanish vessel. What mean you, inquired Hester, startled more than permitted to appear. Have you another passenger? Why, no you not, cried the shipmaster. That is physician here, Chillingsworth, he calls himself. Is minded to try my cabin fare with you? Ay, ay, you must have known it, for he tells me he is of your party and a close friend to the gentleman you spoke of. He is in peril from these sour old Puritan rulers. They know each other well indeed, replied Hester with a mien of calmness, though in the utmost consternation. They have long dwelt together. Nothing further passed between the mariner and Hester Prime, but at that instant she beheld old Roger Chillingsworth himself standing in the remotest corner of the marketplace and smiling on her, a smile which, across the wide and bustling square and through the all the talk and laughter and various thoughts, moods, and interests of the crowd conveyed secret and fearful meaning. All right, and that was chapter 21. Now, this this chapter is a tad bit longer than the other ones. There's no problem with that. Um, This chapter didn't really focus so much on a character. But it focused more on the atmosphere of the town, which like it's very it's very interesting to to see. Maybe doesn't tell us much, but it just lets us really appreciate how this book is written and the imagery and the description and the use of colors that um, Nathaniel Hawthorne uses in the whole book, but this and this chapter is um a very good example of how well written the book is remember earlier when i would always say oh my god imagery oh my god i love this book how it's written well yeah this is one of those instances but i'm actually keeping my cool this time because at the end of the chapter this is where um the story it continues to progress right at the end of this, and also I'm going to touch, I'm going to talk about two things, but I'm going to talk about this um, one first, and I'll explain the other one later. But um, in this chapter, towards the end, we learn more information, and I just hate Roger Chillingsworth even more. He is a very, I, actually, let me rephrase that. He is severely, he's a very, spoiled milk uh, the okay you know what yeah he's just a big gallon of spoiled milk and it's absolutely disgusting because we learn that um the one of the sailors of the 
ship that Hester and Arthur and Pearl are planning on going to in, I think now, one day. Because I remember that last chapter, uh, Arthur, he specifically mentioned that the the uh, the ceremony of you know passing on the 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 title of governor to another person was the day before they had um plans to leave the town so basically in the timeline of the book they're gonna leave tomorrow but now hester finds out that roger chillingsworth he went and talked to i'm assuming the captain of the ship and said hey i'm with hester the little girl and arthur i'm going with you guys <laughs> and obviously the sailor doesn't know what's going on so he's like okay right sure man and he goes and he tells hester about it and you know hester she keeps her cool but I'm pretty sure she's dying inside because when I read that, I got so angry. Obviously, I didn't show it in my voice. I don't know if I did like a little pause of like surprise in it. I don't know if you guys can can notice that, but um, I was surprised and it made me angry. I hate this man, Roger Chillingsworth. Why do you do this? Like, stop, stop, get a life. <sighs> so annoying. But that's what we learn. So now I'm going to um, go back, go way back to when I said that let's think about this book like a like a essay where our thesis was, okay, who is the man? We already know it's Arthur. The second thing was about Pearl. We're still working on that. But now the third body paragraph or the third issue that we're going to be addressing conflict conflict that we're going to be addressing in this quote-unquote essay is will they make it out of the um settlement what is the ultimate ending do do arthur and hester and pearl succeed to leave the town and live a happy life or so this is going to be like the climax well quote-unquote climax of the story because Arthur already accepted to elope with Hester and Pearl and leave this and be reborn and live a new life where they're actually truly happy and free. But now Roger Chillingsworth, as he is accustomed to, comes in and he's trying to ruin everything. So that's going to be the topic of the third uh, body paragraph, right? Now, I'm going to start talking about the other, um, the, the second point that I want to talk about. Even though this was really brief, as I've mentioned before, even though Pearl's scenes or Pearl's dialogue is, uh, relatively brief or short compared to the other characters, uh, she holds so much power and representation and symbolism in her little being in her little character that it is worthy of breaking down and analyzing now in the beginning of the chapter uh we see that um hester you know she she's calm she looks like she usually does but there's something there's a little different the townspeople can well, they can't know this, but the author the author points out that if they were really observant, they would notice that Hester kind of looks a bit more 
alive than dead, you know? But the author also points out that children represent um, whatever is going on in their respective uh, circle, right? So Pearl, she is quite literally the embodiment of Hester's joy and excitement because she's dancing around she's skipping she's not walking by her mother's side she's like skipping around she's singing songs and like shrieking and having outbursts of laughter happiness joy and you know just being more um more energetic and more quote-unquote chaotic if we can put it that way in modern terms i guess more chaotic than what she usually is because she is representing embodying and symbolizing hester's feelings that she because she's excited she's giddy because um based on the time frame that arthur dimsdale gave us last chapter they're going to be leaving tomorrow right they're they're leaving tomorrow they're going to start a new life the three of them like a happy family and even though hester she she's an adult she can keep her cool like she has been doing so for seven years not conveying any emotion to the public little pearl she's a child and she's embodying her mother's feelings so that is an uh, also in a uh, very interesting way that they use that nathaniel or the author of this uh book our mr uh surveyor guy was he a surveyor i'm pretty sure yeah um our surveyor guy uses pearl's character to embody uh so many and symbolize so many things because you know pearl she means the scarlet letter she embodies a connection between arthur and hester now she is symbolizing or embodying hester's feelings uh and she also represents good and evil she's a blessing but at the same time a curse so little pearl's character is the most complex character out of all of them and this was just another example of how she is so complex and dynamic, if we can call it like that. But that was it for the chapter. And I hope you enjoyed it. We're going to see what happens now that we know that um, ugly uh, Roger Chillingsworth is here to ruin everything again. So, so not surprising, to be honest. I just, ugh. He's so annoying. I don't. I really don't like the guy. I hope you guys feel the same way. If you actually like Roger Chillingsworth, we're not friends. <laughs> Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the uh, chapter, and I'll see you real soon.